Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Good morning, church. If you're with us online, we're really glad that you're joining with us as well. It was, a, it was an early morning day, very nice day. Jesus has gone to the temple to teach. And as he is teaching, in the middle of his sermon, a group of religious leaders, Pharisees and scribes, are dragging this woman in before him to accuse her of committing an, adapt, an act of adultery. As Jesus is teaching, you would imagine he would stop and, and he sees them come in and they were trying to trick Jesus into not going along with the law of Moses. They said, Jesus, you know what the law says. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Should we stone her? What do you say? This is what the law of Moses says. What do you say? And in this moment, Jesus is standing and he looks around and he says nothing in that moment. He gets down and he starts to write in the, in the ground, just doodling. And you can imagine as the religious leaders, they're like, hey, this is our moment. We choreographed this. We're expecting you to answer. What do you say, man? What are you doing? This is not a time to be, you know, catching up on your doodles. What are you doing? And Jesus writing, stands up. He looks around at them and says, any of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And he gets back down. And he starts writing again. And Scripture says that one by one, beginning with the older men, one by one they took their rocks and they went on home. No one cast a stone at this woman. And as they all left, Jesus gets back up and he looks at the woman and says, where, where are all of your accusers? Where did they go? And she's like, they're, they're gone. They all left. And, and Jesus tells her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now, I don't know uh, what Jesus was writing. We don't know what he was writing at all. But my conjecture, this is just my conjecture, y'all. Okay, this is just Brandon's idea. I can just imagine as, as he gets down and he says, you know, anyone who has no sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. He gets back down, starts writing, and they're probably just gasping like, what? And I just imagine some of them kind of looking over his shoulder to see what he's writing. I can just imagine that maybe he's writing their names. And next to their name, he's writing their various sexual sins that they've had. I don't know if that's what he did, but that would totally be a boss thing to do, right? Because <laughs> he would totally know. He would totally know. Um, but he says to her, a woman caught in the act. Now, we don't know where the guy was because it takes two to tango. We don't know how they knew about this thing happening. Uh, we don't even know if maybe one of them were the ones who were choreographing it and involved in it. We don't know anything other than this woman is the one that they were using as an accessory to be able to trap Jesus into him not teaching something that it goes with the law of Moses. See, he says to her, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. So the Christian message about sexuality is something that confronts us all. Every, No matter what culture you grow up in, the Christian message about sexuality and about anything else will confront us, but it will also give us hope. 
Jesus did not uh, gloss over her sin. He called her to something better and said, go and sin no more. But he also gave her hope in the fact that he didn't condemn her either. See, today we're, we're in... Uh, we're in the second week of this conversation about sexuality, and we're going to be delving into what I can see from Scripture and from our day, the sexual distortions of our day. But when we were in community group, we read this passage, and if you were in community groups and you were there this past week, you, you would have remembered that, this passage. And the question out of this uh, passage that, that the community group leaders were supposed to ask was this, do you resonate with this woman, the woman caught in the act of adultery? And as a group leader myself, I, I knew that this was like a very personal question. That is a very like, oh, okay, we're going there. And if I don't answer it myself, then it probably doesn't really set us up for a very good conversation. So the question for all of us is, do you, do you resonate with the woman caught in the act of adultery? And my answer was, yes, I do. Because I, I have a past. There was a time when I was not at all honoring God in any area of my life, especially sexually. And so I I resonate with this woman caught in the act of adultery. And the thing is, no matter where you grew up and and what, what your belief system was and like how long you've been in church, the thing is, all of us resonate with this woman. None of us are innocent. None of us. Doesn't matter how nice of clothes you got on for Sunday church. All of us are guilty of the same kind of thing. And so we're all on common ground. And so as we delve into the sexual distortions of our day, understand, I want to set the tone in this that uh, there is grace and that there is rescue and that there is hope for those who sin sexually. And also there is this thing called sin that we have to deal with. And so just like Jesus would say to this woman caught in the act of adultery, I believe he says the same thing to us. Go and sin no more. But through him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So she, he, he says this to her, and I believe he says it to us. So there is grace here that the Christian message not only confronts us and gives us hope, but it gives us hope because it offers us, Jesus offers us rescue and the ability to change. Some sexual sins are addicting, as we'll see. And Jesus offers us rescue from the bondage of that. And he also offers us change, as the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out and calls us to live a different way. So, uh, as we delve in, you have, you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read uh, close to where we were last week in some of our passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what Paul is going to say in this conversation. is going to give us a, a point to see how our, our sexual distortions are in our day. He's going to speak to the ones in the first century. And the surprising thing, maybe not so surprising, is that it resonates with us here today too. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Don't you know... That the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Don't you know that? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. That's all really bad news for every single one of us. Because at some point, all of us would be one of those people. 
Verse 11, and some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the church said, Amen. That's good news. So there's hope in here, but we do need to deal with the things that he's talking about. The first thing that I want to bring out in this as it relates to our conversation we're having about our sexuality, it says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people will inherit God's kingdom. The Greek word that is translated sexually immoral people is porneo. Uh, it, it is it is a catch-all term that captures all of sexual immoral acts outside uh, all, all sexual sin outside of the uh, life uniting covenant of marriage. It's it's a catch-all kind of term. And and if you look at First Corinthians chapter five, if you just rewind a little bit, you'll see that Paul is having this conversation with the church in Corinth because of a very specific thing that was going on in their church. <laughs> Get this. In the first, first century church, Jesus hadn't been dead for very long, right? He hadn't been uh, resurrected and ascended to the heaven in the heavenly throne room for very long. And they're already having problems. There was, he speaks to this, to this man, which everyone, when he said this, would have known who he was talking about. Um, he spoke about this man who was having sex with his father's wife. Now, Paul is very specific not to say his mom... So what we could probably deduce from that is that this is a man having sex with his stepmom. He's like, hey, even the pagans think that's messed up. Like, that's not cool. And, and he's speaking to them about this because the church in Corinth, was they weren't talking about it. They didn't address it. They didn't confront him about it. They didn't say, hey, you shouldn't go do that. This is not God's best for you. They didn't say anything about it. You see, sin in the darkness thrives. Sin in the darkness thrives. And that's why we have to talk about this. It's because even, even then, in the first century, they were dealing with sexual sin. Not just outside of the church. Not just surrounded by it in the culture. But in the church, too. And so we're not going to just let this stuff stay in the darkness. We've got to bring it to the light. Because when it's brought to the light, we can actually experience healing. And so uh, in, in the realm of sexual immorality, I can see at least three of the sexual distortions of our day coming from that. Number one, sexual distortion of our day. Number one, casual sex. And you can add to that a caveat, a, a more specific application of it in our culture's tendency for cohabitation. Casual sex, also cohabitation fits in there too. See, again, last week we talked about, if you were with us last week, we talked about how some people in our culture today believe that sex is nothing. That is, it's no big deal. It's not a thing that you really need to worry about. It's just something that we as humans do. It can be, it can be casual. It's not like a big deal. It's not, it's not a life uniting act that doesn't bring me into this person's life. It's just the thing that we do physically. It's not a big deal. And, and what we see in scripture is that that is utterly wrong. It's, it's not actually true at all that there's something more happening when someone has sex so first corinthians chapter 6 goes on from where paul just said that we just read he says this verse 12 everything is permissible he, he quotes them everything is permissible for me they're like hey i can do whatever i want but not everything is beneficial he responds he quotes them again everything is permissible for me that he said but i will not be mastered by anything they say food is for the stomach 
and the stomach for food. And then Paul responds, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Because they believe that, well, food's for the stomach and sex is for the body. So it's just whatever. It's whatever you want to do. Verse 15. Uh, verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? He's just given a spe- specific example. Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute or anyone they have sex with is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. This is his response. Just like Jesus said, go and sin no more. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Run from it. Get, get away from it. Flee it. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the other person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Some people in our culture think that our bodies are playthings. They're just casual physical it's not a big deal but what paul says in response to that is our bodies are not playthings; they're more like temples they're sacred they're sacred places and we know the depths of the hurt that can be caused when those bodies those temples are wronged are abused and so there's far more at play see casual sex is a a contradiction in terms Casual sex is a contradiction in terms. In other words, sex is not casual. So you can't have casual sex. Now again, just like we've said, there is not, this is not to condemn, but to confront and to offer you hope. Because Jesus says, go and sin no more. There is change that is, that is presented before you as an opportunity to be changed. When you surrender to Jesus and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, He can create in you new desires that are more godly. And he will give you a way out of the temptation when you are confronted by it. So number one, casual sex. Number two, sexual distortion of our day. Talking about sexual immoral uh, immorality. Number two is pornography. Pornography. This This is a problem that is alive and well. Not just in our culture, but in the church and all throughout the earth. This is a major, major issue. And one of the things that makes it so, so, so bad is that the prevailing perspective on it from people is a, it's no big deal. It's not even a problem. Most people think it's just whatever. Like this is, I'm just, I'm just observing uh, adults who are consenting to do this together. It's no big deal. The visuals of it, it's whatever. It's just something I'm watching. It's not affecting me in any other way. It's not a big deal. And that's the prevailing perspective of our day. In fact, this is just some, some actual statistics on this. Um, 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. That, that's just the kind of the, the, the essence of the conversation. It's just either positive or at least neutral. Very rarely is it looked at as negative. Uh, another instance, just 55% of adults 25 and older... All adults, 25 and older, only 55% of them believe porn's wrong. That's, that's every other generation other than 25 and under. 
It's like, hey, it's whatever. About half believe it's no big deal. Only 43% of teens believe porn is bad for society compared to 31% of young adults, which are 18 to 24. 51% of millennials believe porn is bad for society. 44% of Gen Xers and 59% of baby boomers believe that it's bad for society. And the interesting thing about this is even if you believe it's bad, doesn't mean that you're uh, not engaging in it. Just because you believe it's bad doesn't mean you're not engaging in it. Uh, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Uh, Y'all, this is not an issue out there. It is out there and it's also in here in the church. Uh, 51% parents, grandparents, any of you who have nieces and nephews, please hear me. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. I'll say it again. 51% of of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. Before they were teenagers. Y'all, if we're waiting to have these conversations and to be part of the conversation of all the things that are going on in a young person's life, if we're waiting till high school, we've waited too long. If we're waiting till they reach like middle school, we may have waited too long because they've already engaged with trying to, to form an understanding and a belief about it because they're already seeing it. And so we need to have a proactive conversation. 56% of divorces involve one party having a, quote, an obsessive inner interest in pornographic websites. This is not something to be played with. This is highly addictive stuff. With the way the brain chemistry and the dopamine and all this stuff that happens when you're engaging with this, it will rewire your brain. It is not good for you. Uh, Dr. Marianne Layden, she says this about her observations and her clinical experience. She says, I have also seen in my clinical experience that pornography damages the sexual performance of the viewers. Pornography viewers tend to have problems with premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction. Having spent so much time in unnatural sexual experiences with paper, celluloid, and cyberspace, they seem to find it difficult to have sex with a real human being. Pornography is raising their expectation and demand for types and amounts of sexual experiences. At the same time, it is reducing their ability to experience sex. So again, this is a hijacking of God's good gift of sex, being a good gift from him to us, but it needs boundaries, it needs guardrails. And when we don't have them, it leads to bad places. Um, there's an article um, that, that is called Porn is Not Harmless, It's Cruel. And I just want to outline what Justin Holcomb outlines in this. Reasons why you should hopefully believe that porn is not neutral. It is a, it is a wrong thing that is doing bad things to people. Uh, here's what he outlines. Number one, porn fuels the sex trade. I don't know if you knew this, but there are more sl- slavery is more of an issue today than it was ever before in history because of human trafficking, many of that being sex trafficking. That it is a huge problem. Porn, it builds demand for it. 
This is what he says. Traffickers coerce women and children through a variety of recruitment techniques to enter the commercial sex industry in strip clubs, street-based prostitution, and escort services. Thousands of children and women are victimized in this way each year. This is a billions of dollars industry. In America alone, I believe the most latest numbers were it's over a $9 billion industry in America. Sex trafficking. Porn builds the demand for it. Number two, porn shapes sexual desires. Porn teaches its consumers that women exist for the pleasure of men and that their purpose is to be degraded and dehumanized for men's excitement and that they like it even if they pretend not to. If that's all you're exposed to, if that's how you think it's supposed to work, then that's going to lead to very destructive uh, patterns in your relationship. When you dehumanize and commoditize sex, you're objectifying the person. And there's no connection. And that's what it was designed to do. It was designed to have intimate oneness with your spouse. Number three, porn exploits child sexual abuse victims. Marianne uh, Layden, Dr. Marianne Layden, who we just quoted earlier, she's the director of of the Center for Cognitive Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania. And she reports that most women involved in the sex industry are adult survivors of sexual abuse. Research indicates that the number is between 60% and 80% of the women involved in the porn industry are survivors of child sex abuse. That's sad. Number four, porn supports rape culture. Porn supports rape culture. The point isn't that porn uh, causes all viewers who engage in it and consume it to abuse others, but that it creates what researchers called uh, rape culture by normalizing, legitimizing, and condoning violence against women and children. It is not good. Number five, porn hijacks children's sexuality. Again, if you've got young people viewing pornography at a very early age, before they've even had conversations with their parents or grandparents uh, about what that is supposed to look like, about what God's design is, we don't talk about it in the church, they're getting all their clues from porn. Gail Dines, author of Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality, she explains the implications of porn. She says this, We are now bringing up a generation of boys on cruel, violent porn. Given what we know about how images affect people, this is going to have a profound influence on their sexuality, their behavior, and their attitudes toward women. Marianne Layden, she also argues this, there is evidence that the prevalence of pornography in the lives of many children and adolescents is far more significant than most adults realize that pornography is deforming the healthy sexual development of these young viewers and that it is used to exploit children and adolescents. The irony is in our day and time, everyone or the culture for the most part is all about sexual freedom. And when you have no boundaries, what sexual freedom leads to and it's applied in these kinds of ways is destruction. And it is not good. So this is having the narrative uh, given to our young people and not just young people, but any people who, who consume it. Number six, and the final thing he points to, is that porn limits men and women. 
We've already alluded to this, but he, he, she, she, he, uh, Justin Holcomb specifically says, pornography enslaves the viewer to an image hijacking the biological response intended to bond a woman to his wife and therefore inevitably loosening that bond. That there's supposed to be this intimacy that is involved when we are engaging in these acts and when pornography is the thing, is the place that it's going to be engaged in, it is a, it is a hit of, of, Chemistry, chemical, dopamine, all that stuff without any connection to a real person. And that's not a good thing. Is that sex was God's idea and He's given us guardrails for it so that we can be healthy in this area. He tells us these guardrails and wants us to be in this life uniting act, uh, within a life uniting covenant of marriage because it's what's good for us. He's not trying to be like, oh, just, oh, wish God wouldn't say that. I just want to do what I want to do. God's saying this because it's for our good. Number three, the third sexual distortion of our day. Coming from sexual immorality and a lot of other things that are involved in it is this, number three, sex abuse. This is a major problem. And as we can see that pornography contributes to the conditions that are in someone's mind that would lead them to engage in this kind of thing, to abuse someone, to dehumanize them and commoditize the act of being able to take that from them. So you can see how connected it is to pornography. When men are viewing commoditized versions of sex that have no real human connection associated with them but are simply tools for pleasure, then it's no wonder that we are seeing sex abuse become more and more prominent in our culture. And this is not just something, pornography and, and sex abuse, is not something that's just exclusive to men watching porn and, and women being sexually abused. That's the, the numbers bode more ratio-wise to that, but that is something that all people, all people have to fight against. When it, terms, when it comes to pornography and sex abuse, is not something that men don't face either. So look at this again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Again, we're not talking about this to condemn. We're talking about this to confront. And hopefully, as God works in your heart, if you resonate with any of these things, that you are uh, seeing that there's hope in His name, and there's rescue in His name, that He can change you from the inside out, and you can find freedom from these things. That is my hope and that is my prayer in this. Number four, sexual uh, distortion of our day. Number four, adultery. Adultery. This is when someone who's married uh, has sex outside of their marriage. And, And it's really hard to kind of identify how prominent this is, how common it is. But some research uh, has been done. Some research has been done. The general social survey, it's been conducted since 1972 out of the University of Chicago for 37 years. They've asked uh, married people, a, a national sample, they've asked them the same question about infidelity. And the results have been consistent. Every year, 10% of spouses admit to cheating. 10% every year. This is a common problem. And this is not, you know, taking into account religious perspective. This is just a national average, 
which includes anyone of any worldview of any kind. Every year, 10% of spouses admit to cheating. 12% of men, 7% of women. This is a, you know, everyone has their own journey and story and path to get to the point where you would be willing to do that. However, what's oftentimes happening is that there's stress or something at home or at work and, and there is a drive toward intimacy with someone outside of your spouse. And this is why it's so important that we create inside of a marriage this uh, willingness to be vulnerable, this willingness to communicate, this willingness to, to extend grace, this willingness to extend mercy, this willingness to connect. It's because this will oftentimes lead down to a bad place. So where what God has brought together, it's a separation of that. And it's ugly and it's not good. And so number four is adultery. Um, let's read this again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. So the fifth sexual distortion of our day is one that has become very prominent and very public um, in our culture, and that is homosexuality. Homosexuality. Um, Over the last decades, it's become more normalized and more celebrated in our day and time. And uh, one of the things that has become more of a thing lately in the last maybe 20, 30 years is there's been specific work by uh, those who want to push uh, this kind of an idea that they, they have been going to the Bible and trying to reinterpret Scripture so that it would we would come to the conclusion that God has either nothing to say about our day and time's form of homosexuality or it, it has nothing bad to say about it at all. And if you if you just simply read the Scriptures, we could go through a whole survey of, of passages that talk about this, that this is not a new thing. They were dealing with this in the first century. This is not a new phenomenon in the human race. Um, we would see that the Bible does teach against it. Now, I'm not trying to make this whole message about homosexuality because there are all kinds of sexual distortions of our day. And, and we're not going to just simply look at one and just rail against that one. Because we have plenty of things in our world, even if you don't resonate with that issue, we have plenty of things in our own house that we need to deal with. But let me, let me just make this very, very clear for us as Christians, as Christ followers, on how we ought to think about this. So, again, just because this may not be your struggle, it may be. It, it, even if it's not, you have your own stuff. None of us are innocent. But, just as Jesus said, go and sin no more. I want to make sure that we understand this. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus is speaking about uh, adultery and lust, and it brings up an important part of this conversation. Uh, he says this, You have heard that it was said, Jesus says this, Do not commit adultery. You've heard that said. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus having this conversation about lust and adultery and how Jesus and, and, and the triune God are concerned not just about what actions you do, but even the thoughts that you have. 
That, that you can commit adultery in your heart by lusting after another person. That is both same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction. Now, what we need to distinguish here is the difference between lust and attraction. Sometimes, Christian teachers will not explain this and will then make the open connection that everyone just makes, that attraction, noticing someone else's beauty, is the same thing as lusting after them. This is very prominent in Christian marriage books, which we're going to talk about how we as Christ followers, and especially within marriage, have taught on sexuality and sex within a marriage. In a, in a, we've dropped the ball uh, on this. Uh, it's basically the idea that men can't help but lust. It's just, oh, we, we're just going around lusting everywhere. And we can't help it. We shouldn't expect ourselves not to. It's just, it's just our design. It's just, that's it. And our, our wives are, are there to just appease our sexual urges and desires. That's not true. We'll talk about that next week. But as it relates to this, attraction and lust, they're not the same thing. You can notice someone's beauty without lusting after them. Lust is, is, is what Jesus said. It's committing adultery in your heart. It's going down a narrative in your mind, taking you down a story, down a path where you are committing adultery with that person. In your mind. So yes, lust is a sin. But attraction and lust are not the same thing. And so for someone who's same-sex attracted, can they live for God? Can they honor God? Can they follow Jesus? That's the question. Because if the answer is no, then that means there's no hope for that segment of people who struggle with same-sex attraction. But I would contend that it is possible, even if you, are, if you, if you have same-sex attraction, it's possible to live for God anyway. And these words are very important. It's very important that we think about this deeply and to understand it. Um, Guy Hammond, he, he wrote a book... Um, kind of sharing his own testimony, but also sharing what God's word says about homosexuality. Um, and he is a same-sex attracted man um, who has been married to a woman. Uh, she passed away. He's a widow. And then he, he remarried with another woman. But he shares his story. Um, and I think it's really worth us just reading and, and hearing what his testimony is that led him to where he is. So uh, this is what Guy Hammond says. Because he's addressing one of the questions that are common in our day and time. He says this, Was I born this way? Well, God, if, if you created me to be attracted to the same sex, then it's your fault. I shouldn't be condemned because you made me this way, right? That's one of the arguments. Was I born this way? While you cannot paint every homosexually attracted person with the same broad brush, that would be dangerous. What he does say is a hundred years of research shows that there are some common contributing denominators to the causation of homosexual attraction. Some common contributing denominators, okay? I seem to have been able to check off most of the boxes. I fit the stereotype almost perfectly. Sensitive disposition, sensitive disposition, distant father, overbearing mother, chaotic home life, and sexually molested when I was a kid. This is what he says. I was eight when when a trusted friend of the family stopped by for an overnight visit. He was 19. Since he needed the place to sleep for the night, my parents invited him to share my double bed. Again, he's eight years old. In the morning, he took me outside and threatened me to not tell anyone what had happened, and I didn't speak for it, speak of it for 27 years. My dad had suffered from numerous physical and mental health illnesses, and for decades, for when I was 
from when I was about eight years old until I was 27, my mom involved herself in numerous adulterous affairs. As a young teen, it was common for me to wake up in the middle of the night and watch her sneak out of the house to get in some strange man's car and be gone for hours. I have memories of my dad and me driving through the city late at night, going from apartments to hotels, trying to find her to bring her home. When I was 11, I came home from school and found a suicide note my dad had written. He was about to overdose on prescription painkillers. Two years later, as my father and I traveled down a busy highway in Toronto during a blizzard, he screamed and cried uncontrollably. He pulled over on the shoulder of the highway to let me out because he said he was going to crash the car into the side of a bridge and kill himself. When he stopped the vehicle to push me out onto the side of the freeway, I grabbed the keys out of the ignition and refused to give, him, give them back until he promised to get us both home safely. I could go on and on. These are just the highlights. I don't blame all of my problems on my parents. I'm responsible for my own choices. Mom and dad weren't horrible people, and these terrible decisions they made aren't the sum of their lives. But I hope it does explain why I made some of the awful choices I made during my preteen and teen years that I'm responsible for, even in a small way. I'll add that my mother and father did eventually reconcile, get help, and forgive one another, and their final years together were relatively happy ones before my father passed. I was 12 when a friend from school introduced the idea of us trying some sexual things together. Carl eventually became my boyfriend, and we carried on a relationship that lasted a decade. Because of the chaos and fighting between my parents, home was not a safe place, but Carl was. Those were difficult and confusing years, when I was in my early 20s, I made horrible decisions to participate in several anonymous gay encounters, a life of wild living that was not interrupted until I studied the Bible to become a Christian at the age of 24. I have never participated in homosexuality since, although as I near the age of 60, I'm still attracted to men. How much of my homosexual attractions can be attributed to nature and how much of it is nurture? Who knows? That is just one person's account of dealing with same-sex attraction and then being confronted by the love and the grace and the call of Jesus and doing something that all of us are called to do in every area of life, including our sexuality. And that is this, Luke 9.23. Jesus says, If any of you would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me. The, the pathway in following Jesus is self-denial. Self-denial when, we would, when our desires draw us towards sin. And so each one of us in our lives have sexual sin, sexual temptations that we have to deny ourselves of. And Jesus is looking at anyone who deals with same-sex attraction and he looks at them with compassion and he calls them to the very same thing to deny oneself. That is a reality for every single person. Uh, Sam Alberry, who wrote the book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With?, who is also a man who follows Jesus, who is celibate, and he deals with same, he is attracted to other men. This is what he said. God cares who we sleep with because he cares that we really do love each other well. And that might mean loving in a different way to how we feel. It might mean that we have to love in a different way than how we feel. And he's specifically dealing with the, the difficult pain of someone who is confronted by what Jesus calls us to and maybe already in a homosexual relationship with someone 
He's saying it's not that God doesn't want you to love that person. He wants you to love them in the right way. So those are the five that I'm bringing up. And I think they at least have four roots to our, our, our distortions. They, they come from a place. Number one, it, it's, it comes from the dehumanization of sex for a lot of these things. Number two, the commoditization of sex. Number three, the lack of healthy boundaries. And number four, allowing our desires to rule the show. It's always a bad idea to allow your desires to make the decisions of your life. Because your desires may not be the desires that God would want you to have. That's for people who are heterosexual and homosexual. It doesn't matter. It's the same for all of us. And there are some things that all of us can probably see that we've dropped the ball either in our past, maybe even our present. But the future doesn't have to be the same as the past. It doesn't have to be the same as the present. Because what we've seen is this. Paul says, and some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to sin in these ways. Some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you used to be this way, but you surrendered to Jesus and He uh, changed you from the inside out. If you were to go into a courtroom and God was the judge and, and it was basically a trial to decide whether or not you were guilty of sinning, Of course you know you were. But because Jesus uh, sacrificed himself and gave himself to you freely, and if you surrender to him and, and follow him, then you have the reception of this. When God looks at you and declares the uh, ultimate uh, decision on, on whether or not you are guilty, because you follow Jesus, you are not guilty anymore. Because Jesus covers you with his blood because he was perfect and he imputes that he gives you that perfection so if you are someone you you yes i i resonate with the adulterous woman i resonate with someone who has a sexual sinful past even a present Understand Jesus offers you rescue and he offers you change he offers you yes he confronts you but yes he gives you hope and that is good news that you, when, when you follow Jesus, he indwells you by his spirit and he wants to change you from the inside out so that little bit by little bit, your desires begin to change. The adulteress becomes one who can love again. The sexually immoral becomes someone who can be holy in that way. The, the person who's completely addicted to pornography can experience freedom from that. That's what Jesus offers. And get this, church. Hear me when I say this. God's love is not withheld from sexual sinners. He offers it. The question is, will you receive it? Again, none of us are innocent in this. And the good news is that God's love is not withheld from sexual sinners. It's like, oh, you did that? Nope, can't love you anymore. But he does call us to receive it from him and to follow him. God isn't against sex. It was his idea. He's not against sex. It was his idea. And yes, he's given us some guardrails, some boundaries to live in. But he does that for our good. So that we can experience the intimate oneness that it's designed for within the life uniting covenant of marriage. And he offers us freedom from those desires. Yes, we may still struggle, but he always offers us a way out of temptation. 
So if you're someone who's struggling with sexual sin, don't allow that to stay in the darkness. Find someone you trust to share it with because it will continue to grow in the darkness. Find someone you can talk to who will point you to Jesus, who will point you to the story of the adulterous woman and where Jesus says, where are your accusers? They're they're nowhere, Lord. They all left. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Find someone who who will call you to that, call you to grace and truth. For those of you who are struggling with the addiction of pornography, there's two resources I just want to point you to. The first one is covenanteyes.com, covenanteyes.com. And then the other one is triplexchurch, xxxchurch.com. Get that right when you type it in, okay? xxxchurch.com. Get help. Don't think that you can just deal with this on your own. You probably need some help, some trusted help. I think this is vitally important that we talk about this, that we understand this, that we bring this to the light. Because when things are brought to the light, healing can happen. Church, would you stand? We're going to pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for your grace in uh, dealing with us in this topic, um, allowing us to come to this conversation with Uh, with a realization of your grace and also a realization of the, the sin that we do see in our world, the sin that we don't just see in the world, but we see when we look in the mirror. Help us, Lord, to walk in freedom. Help us to lean on the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us. To, to bring us to a point where we can experience freedom from these things that are enshackling us. Jesus, we know that you are greater than any of the things that we deal with on this earth. We know that your power is greater. Please help us to believe that, not just for our salvation, for our behavior that people can see, but even in the, the, the behaviors and even in the heart stuff that, that, that is so intricately connected in our lives that deals with our sexuality. Help us to find freedom there in your ways. Help us to abide in you. We love you, Jesus. Please hear us as we sing in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.